going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe today and tomorrow he'll be back in the chair on Monday. Well, we do have a great show coming up today. I'm not sure if you heard this story yet out of Vancouver, but Vancouver City Council has voted unanimously to declare a climate emergency. So this is a way for them to look at uh, controlling some greenhouse gases and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll be chatting with Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation coming up in just a few minutes. Also, no doubt you heard the story about the deer in Lethbridge and some of the other uh, animal uh, cases in our province. We are going to check in with Alberta Party MLA Rick Fraser coming up uh, just uh, in after four o'clock today. He has uh, is circulating a petition to increase the penalties for animal abuse and cruelty here in Alberta. Has some stats about where we place with regards to punishment uh, with uh, in comparison to the rest of the country. It's not good. So we'll talk to Rick about that uh, coming up after four o'clock. New study showing that 58% of food in Canada is wasted with most of that coming from the food industry. So we'll be chatting with a gal from a local company called the Leftovers Foundation. Uh, that's uh, just after five o'clock. And... Betty White, the lovely Betty White, 97 years old today. We're going to talk about aging gracefully on the same day that uh, Prince Philip, who is also 97, has crashed his car. So uh, bonus to him that he was driving. Great news that he's not injured. We'll look at the difference in aging and how we can age gracefully. All that keeping up to date as well on your weather and your traffic as we do have a number of weather warnings in the province, some snowfall warnings into the southern regions and extreme cold warnings into the north. So we are looking at cold temperatures all all across the province, but specifically we do have uh, some heavy snowfall amounts expected into that southwest and southern region of Alberta. So we'll keep you up to date on that and your driving conditions. And as always, we welcome your text messages, 403-974-8255, 403-974-8255. Thank you, 3.37 right now on a chilly Thursday. I'm guessing that if your kids had afternoon recess today in Calgary, they did not go outside as the wind chill value is sitting right now at minus 25. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe McFarland today and tomorrow. And I would like to welcome to the program right now, Chris Sims. Chris is the BC director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for the invitation. Now, uh, I understand you're picking up your kids, but they're well instructed that they listen. When <laughs> mommy's on the, on the radio, they have to be quiet. So kudos to them for that. I'll be picking them up momentarily, but yeah, they're usually okay. But if you suddenly hear them doing the whole BBC kid thing in the background, they're just as cute. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's like a slice of my own life right now. (laughs) So, Chris, we heard this news today that the Vancouver City Council has voted unanimously. They had a meeting last night. They've declared a climate emergency. And uh, now that the motion has passed, city staff is going to have to come up with new ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and set new climate change targets. I know here in Alberta, I'm sure you can hear the cries of uh, protest and rolling of the eyes, but what's happening on your side of the Alberta-BC border with regards to this? Well, it's one of those things that at first it sounds meaningless, where they declare things like that, and it's usually just words, and they did it last night at council. But it's always in the details, and you're right. Now they're going to be directing their city staff of finding ways to, in their view, cut greenhouse gases. But really when it comes down to the average person, uh, that means they're going to charge us more for day-to-day living. So 
As of right now, even before they declared this last night, we've got the highest carbon tax in all of Canada. It's $35 a ton. It's going up to $40 a ton in April. That adds about $0.08 cents a litre right now to our gasoline. If you can believe it, um, Vancouver City Hall is actively and aggressively trying to ban natural gas heating in private homes, uh, making it so difficult to actually get a natural gas furnace installed in your new unit or a renovated unit that it's next to impossible. Um, It's a very, very expensive place to live already. And now they just passed this new thing and everybody's bracing themselves to find out exactly what it means. Well, how exactly do you do that then? What are they proposing people do? Not yet. They're they're not mentioning things yet. But as I can tell you, um, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, the provincial government passed this brand new document called the Clean BC Plan. And what they're trying to do is make it illegal uh, to purchase a gasoline or diesel powered vehicle by either the year 2030 or 2040, depending on what kind of vehicle you drive. Uh, They're also trying to make it so that even in the construction of your home, meaning the trucks and the tools and the equipment they're using to build your house, they want that to somehow be emissions-free in the future. And most of people listening right now will be saying, well, that runs on diesel or that runs on gasoline. Yes, I know. Uh, but they've decided to do away with it at a future date. And so I worry that this is what this uh, Vancouver City Hall idea is going to be. What happens then with a proposal like that, with the provincial government saying that, you know, you have to ban a gasoline or, or diesel-powered vehicle? What, what would be the punishment then? That's a great question. Would they make it so that you can't get insurance? That's probably what they would try to do, because here in British Columbia, we don't have choice when it comes to auto insurance. Mm -hmm. You are forced to deal with a government-controlled monopoly called ICBC, and any of your listeners who right now have tried to move and live in B.C. and cross the Rockies will realize and know that there's a huge sticker shock when you try to insure a vehicle over on this side. Um, It's way more expensive, and so, frankly, they'd probably just deny you uh, auto insurance. That just seems like it's opening up a Pandora's box to me. Well, it really is, considering the fact that I think a little bit less than 1% um, right now of vehicles that are sold are electric vehicles. All of the rest. Just think of all of the infrastructure, all the cars, all the trucks, all the fueling stations. All of it is gasoline and diesel. And they're picking this time in the future to get rid of them. And so what I think this Vancouver City Declaration is basically like a a mini-me version of that. And so now going forward, we're going to be seeing things like we need higher transit uh, taxes on our gasoline. Right now, it's going to be 18 and a half cents a liter. In April, that's how much people pay. Right now, they pay 17 cents per liter for, for gasoline that goes to transit. And it's going up to 18.5 cents in April. So stuff like that is going to get jacked up again. Well, and we just had a texter say, so funny, BC ferries run on diesel, so are they replacing all the boats? I guess that's a fair that's question. That's a great question. Actually, uh, they're trying to convert right now a lot of these boats to natural gas. But what's really interesting is that they signed this new LNG deal up in northern uh, BC, which, of course, is getting a lot of press right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's to export LNG. Well, in order to appease the green part of the NDP green government we have here in British Columbia, now the scuttlebutt is is that they're going to be going after us, British Columbians, and our domestic use 
of natural gas to compensate for the evil of exporting it. And I'm using that, of course, tongue-in-cheek. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to try to go after us and somehow reduce our use of natural gas um, in, or, in order to sell it overseas. Now, what's the feeling from people that you've talked to? I know that this is a new, uh, this was a new decision made last night by the Vancouver City Council, but are you finding that most people are on board? Because when I talk to my friends in BC, uh, they seem to think that these are all very logical decisions and that it's very easy to implement and very easy to, to just switch over to uh, having absolutely no emissions. And it's almost as if they're not aware. Uh, what is it that you're hearing? By and large, I find that the thinking that this is somehow just an easy flip of the switch usually, not always, but usually comes from folks who already live next to a rapid transit train. So in Vancouver, it's SkyTrain. Uh, or they already live hyper-urban. They can walk to work. They can walk to their groceries. They can drop their kids off using strollers instead of, you know, an SUV. But for the majority of average working people in B.C., once you cross the Fraser River and you get out to places like Surrey and Langley and Abbotsford and places up north like Prince, Prince George, um, they're just like your average working Albertan. Uh, we drive cars, we drive trucks, we need to get to work, we need to get to school, and all of our groceries, like every other person, are brought into us on a truck. Mm-hmm. And so that is why it makes everything more expensive when you jack up the cost of gasoline, diesel, and carbon taxes. And so if I would find the average person, the working family type person, um, they're tapped out. Like, the, it's so expensive living here in B.C. Just to paint you a picture, for Metro Vancouver, in many cases, housing costs more than Manhattan. Our gasoline prices are the highest in North America, and we're locked in to the highest auto insurance wow. in, in Canada. So we, they don't have a lot of room to budge anymore. And when they hear things like this, a lot of folks get really upset. Well, how did this happen then? How did City Council feel like this was the direction that they should be moving in? You know, there's a lot of folks who do agree with them who live, like I said, Mm. in downtown Vancouver. And it's really nice. It's a beautiful place to live if you can afford it. Um, Most of us can't. And they voted them in. And as you probably have in Alberta as well, unfortunately, the participation and the voting rate for municipal politics and elections is really low. And so you'll wind up with folks who are often career politicians uh, who only have ever worked in government jobs. They haven't actually owned a business or employed people or earned a really big salary or a hard-won salary in their regular lives, usually before they become city councillors or mayors. Not always, but usually. And those are the sorts of folks that are making these decisions now. But you have to think they walk in every... I mean, I'm assuming they don't all live right next to City city Hall. Like, I mean, they have to get there somehow. They're, you know, walking into a building that's heated. Like, how how is this, you know... <laughs> Where's the disconnect? Yeah. Um, That's a great question. So quite often we will have, uh, say, hydroelectric power. And people think that that only comes from BC Hydro. But what's really funny is that if you contact folks like Stuart Muir or Resource Works, overnight, because it's cheaper, we often buy electricity from you guys, from coal-fired power plants. And so it's one of my favorite things to do to remind some of these city councillors in Vancouver who like to plug in their Priuses at night <laughs> yeah. that they're using Alberta coal to do that. Ah, uh, very good. Chris, can, <laughs> can you hang on just for one second? We have to take a quick break for traffic, but I'd love to ask you a few more questions. Sure. It is 347.
Well, good afternoon. We are just chatting with Chris Sims. Chris is the BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and we're discussing the decision by Vancouver City Council last night to declare a climate emergency. Chris, thank you for sticking around. We have some great texts that I had to share with you. One person saying, uh, there's an easy solution we can bring back from the past. It's called the horse and buggy. Uh, someone else saying, wow, maybe the Vancouverites should ease up on the doobie consumption. <laughs> and uh, another person saying, it sounds like more and more BC folks will be moving to Alberta. But here's a great question. So uh, one person asking, what is BC planning to do about the coal exports then to China? So are you are they planning to play in both courts here, do you think? Or what's the future that's, looking like? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I live in the Fraser Valley, and that's a corridor for the railway. And of course, when it isn't hauling uh, uh, gasoline and diesel uh, in those big, long, uh, black cylindrical uh, cars, they're hauling coal. And it's one of the biggest coal shippers, you're right, out of the Vancouver ports. And it's one of our major businesses. And there's just a big disconnect there. What's interesting it is. Is, that, is that the more coal we ship over to China, the more they're going to burn. But if we do things like LNG, and if we do things like shipping your oil and gas out of here, they'll burn less coal, which would be better. We're just hoping that they make that connection. It's it's so fascinating to me. Uh, someone else pointing out there will be no more groceries for these morons because all the groceries come in to the province by truck, and if diesel is illegal, you will no longer have any groceries. I mean, these are these are long term. You know, twenty thirty. I find it yeah. incredibly hard that the provincial government could go ahead with that plan by twenty thirty. But even for the local government to make it more difficult for people to do business, I, I it's, find it hard to believe that Vancouver is doing so well that they can jump on this so quickly. The average working person, I'll be blunt, isn't doing very well. Uh, a lot of people are in a lot of debt. Uh, they find it unaffordable to live in the lower mainland. Uh, rent is crazy. Housing is crazy. Our gas prices are through the roof. And a lot of it is due to government decisions like this, unfortunately. And it's hard to really see an end in sight. I know it gets depressing, uh, but that's just the way it is. And I think I keep meeting with people, even folks, you know, who like to drive uh, an electric car, I keep reminding them that it was manufactured using uh, rare earth minerals for its batteries. It was brought in from overseas. It was shipped. All of the groceries they eat and the supplies they use was trucked to them using diesel. And the, the building that they are in right now is constructed using machinery, using things like oil and gas. It's it's literally so obvious and around us so much that it's almost weird to have to explain it to people. Well, it's, still do. it's almost like they're they're counting on just living on this, you know, island unto themselves where, you know, nothing gets shipped in then, nothing gets driven in. I mean, how could you possibly figure that that's a sustainable model? It's really impractical. And what, what bothersome is that folks will often say, oh, well, make the switch, as if it's a difference between earnestly, paper or plastic grocery bags, or deciding to be, say, uh, eat less meat. It's, it's not the same thing. Uh, oil and gas and the vehicles that we use it are the lifeblood of our economy. Like, everything we do and use and eat is because of it. And it's interesting, one of your callers mentioned the horse and buggy. A lot of folks will ask me, well, you know, if we don't have a carbon tax, how are we going to switch to the electric car? And that really doesn't make sense, because if you look back 100 years ago to the front page of the New York Times, they had a huge energy crisis then, too, and it was actually horses. There were so many horses and carts in New York that they were drowning in horse manure. It was piled up everywhere. It was a public health emergency. 
but the government didn't ban horses. Man invented the automobile. A better and life option. Improved. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Life improved. Very interesting. Well, I look forward to talking with you again and learning more about what's happening next in this story. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the time. Send help when you can. <laughs> well, we've got some vacancies here, so you're welcome to come anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. It is. Uh, that's Chris Sims uh, with the BC Taxpayers Federation. It's 3.53. Good afternoon. It's 4.09. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe McFarland today and tomorrow. He's back in tomorrow. No doubt you've heard the story about that situation down in Lethbridge with the deer and some of the other animal uh, breeder facilities in Calgary, or pardon me, in Alberta that have really uh, rocked some communities and had people upset and calling for stricter laws to protect our animals. Well, Rick Fraser, Alberta Party MLA for Calgary Southeast, is circulating a petition trying to get more attention to this matter. And we have Rick joining us now. Good afternoon, Minister. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, Rick, tell me a little bit about uh, the timeline for this petition that you uh, have started and the conversation that you've had trying to draw some attention to this. So actually, it goes back over a year. I have to commend uh, one of my staff members, Kelly McQuarrie, in my office, uh, brought this to my attention and, in fact, organized a number of stakeholders over the last year. We probably had about five or six different meetings we met with. Uh, animal protection officers, police officers, veterinarians, um, uh, pet owners themselves, uh, animal rescue groups, and just advocates generally for their animals. And uh, what was concerning for me when I heard this brought to light to me was that, you know, first of all, there was a report recently that says we ranked 10, 10 out of 13 and about to drop to 11 overall in terms of animal protection in the country. And, you know, so that's, that's one piece. And then the other part is that the, the Animal Protection Act hasn't been meaningfully um, changed since 2005. And so the way that I operated with this, uh, I took it to Minister Carlier. We worked with his office. We gave, we created basically a three-column document, one that you would create in cabinet. And uh, again, we took out spots where we thought um, there was overreaches, and then we kept in spots where we thought there were reasonable amendments to the act. And we gave it to the minister, um, and uh, they were unwilling to do anything at this time. And so then again, I proceeded to ask questions in the legislature on this particular issue. And, you know, during that time, we've seen, uh, again, just a number of uh, things in our community where obviously this issue needs to be addressed. And I'm surprised to hear that there was no reception to this idea. Well, you know, again, it was all platitudes. It's, well, we'll take a look at it. Thanks for doing this in terms of cooperation. And, you know, and typically that's how I operate in the legislature. I try to get things done behind the scenes because my job is not to play politician. My job is to get the job done. And on this particular file, we worked really hard and we're patient and waiting and thought that we might get some traction and it just simply didn't happen. And then, you know, we had to start asking questions in light of the coyote video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that just, you know, I think it says something about our society and whether they're mental health issues. But ultimately, animals need pre- to be protected. And I can tell you, in my community, you know, when we're out in the out in the community, how many people own animals and how much they care about their animals or have companion animals that are helping in other medical distress issues. And so, you know, I think it's time that uh, we step up to the plate and protect animals the way they should. I think as society as a whole, we use their animals differently, and that's part of that. Uh, so it's about a reasonable conversation, and we also have to make sure that we know we're uplifting our agricultural uh, businesses and our producers. I think in most cases they do a phenomenal job, but I think and we, and we hope that they're partners in this. And again, we met with some of them. So it's not about a blame game. It's about what can we do to just strengthen the act and protect our animals even better. 
So we're right now sitting 10th out of 13th with regards to uh, any sort of teeth with, with our legislation. So what is it that other jurisdictions are doing that we're not? Well, I think in some cases, so for instance, if you were a neighbor and you saw somebody kicking their dog and you called the police or you called an animal protection officer, they, they have a very difficult time to enter the house to see the welfare of that animal. So it seems pretty simple to me that that's one way that you could correct it to be able to view the animal and, and make sure that that animal is safe and that it's not suffering. And then it's also maybe redefining some of the things in the act around what is cruelty, what is adequate care uh, for some people, uh, whether it's just um, you know not being educated enough. We saw this recent case down in Lethbridge. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's obviously somebody needs some remedial training, and you know, uh, my guess is that uh, police forces around the province are going to go through that type of scenario. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if, if we lose sight of, of those things, and again, it's, it's about education, really. This is an opportunity for us to enhance the legislation, but also educate people what is adequate care. Can you leave your dog out in minus 12 weather, and how long can you do that? Is that acceptable anymore? You know, how much water? And, you know, one of the things I know for our animal at our house, Rusty, we love him to death, but what we learned is that, you know, you know he had a high pain tolerance, and we learned that through our veterinarian, which is having to just make sure where you're pulling teeth uh, when they start to get bad so that they're not in pain because you might not necessarily see it. So by enhancing this act, I think there's an opportunity to educate our public, care for our animals, and ultimately I think that just creates for a better society. And are you hoping to have some stricter punishments so there's that sort of that uh, flip side to this conversation, not just being able to check on the welfare, but also that there are uh, repercussions if something goes wrong? Well, again, I think there's a direct correlation. I think we've heard the evidence over the years uh, how people treat animals and or if they're abusing animals that um, they uh, could possibly, you know, have issues that, you know, hurt humans. And so to be on top of that and create uh, stricter regulations and stricter laws that either punish people or get them the treatment that they need so that they don't turn on humans, I think is, uh, I think that's a, a reasonable argument. So as I understand it, you've sent a letter to uh, Minister Carlier asking that, you know, for an answer to when will this be looked at? Uh, Is there a chance this will get looked at before we hit an election? I'm not sure. I think, you know, I think there is an easy opportunity. I think most people in the legislature on all sides want to make sure animals are protected. We want to make sure that our agricultural community and um, producers are, 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 you know, put in the best position to have healthy businesses. So I think there's an appetite, and we want to continue that discussion. So we're open to a discussion anytime. Uh, at the end of the day, that you know the election is going to be called, but we still have work to do. This is one of the pieces I think that they could easily correct uh, before that time comes. So playing devil's advocate, is it possible the reason why we're sitting in the position we are with regards to that uh, that legislation is because of the agricultural angle to this? That is it something that we're afraid that uh, certain parts of our, our province might interfere with the way that they do things? You know, that might be possible. And again, you know, I reiterate, you know, I, my family has a farm, a mixed farm uh, out uh, by Drumheller for over 100 years. My dad's uh, a farmer. And uh, so I respect that community and I don't want to do anything to damage the family farm or our producers. And I think by and large, they're very responsible, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's an opportunity for them uh, to also highlight the good work that they do and how they care for animals. But it's also, again, an education of, you know, how, how is it possible to move, you know, a thousand pound animal and what do you need to do and, and how they go about that rather than be vilified by, you know, perhaps a bad video um, yeah. that that's circulating that sort of thing. And so, 
you know, uh, and again, we had we had uh, some producers uh, visit with us, and you know, we understand that you know, for the most part, we're talking about small animals here. We did talk about large animals, but again, this is about continuing the conversation. All we've done is we've put forward some recommendations. My hope is that the minister would put together a panel along with producers uh, and our agricultural community, farming community, because they need to be respected in all this. And, uh, you know, put something together and see what good work we can get done. Well, I wish you luck with this. And uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much. That's Rick Fraser, Alberta Party MLA, looking at uh, moving forward changes to the legislation to help protect animals in our province. It's 417. Good afternoon, 511. I'm Jody Hughes in for Joe. He's back in on Monday. An article came out today talking about food waste in Canada and how a huge percentage of the food that is produced ends up getting wasted. In fact, the vast majority of it, 58% of food in Canada can be wasted along the chain, along the line. And I wanted to welcome to the program Lourdes Juan. Uh, Lourdes is with the Leftovers Foundation here in Calgary. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about your organization. Sure. We started, um, I guess, almost seven years ago now. So back in 2012, um, I just sort of saw the amount of food that was going to waste at a local bakery. And that's where we started. Um, And so we started redirecting from a bakery to a service agency. And that grew to two, three, four vendors. Uh, Today, uh, we are at about 84 routes a week, delivering from one vendor to the next. And we have over... 60 vendors and, and over 40 service agencies that we work with uh, in Calgary and Edmonton. And so with regards to a service agency, are you talking about a food bank or a different group like that? Absolutely, yeah. So we are non-denominational, so we donate to every and all uh, agencies that could use a particular food. So certainly the food bank, the drop-in centre, the mustard seed, Alpha House, those types of agencies where they have kitchens uh, and they're serving clients food, that's where we would provide that excess food. How much do you think that you are delivering every week, let's say, here in Calgary? Yeah, so our 2018 stats are are coming up here, but um, I have 2017 stats, and they're about the same, with the exception of bringing on Edmonton. So per week, we redirect 4,000 pounds of food a week in Calgary. What kind of food are we talking about? So it's all perishable. Um, So it's it's mostly perishable. I would say 95, 96% perishable. So that's fruits and vegetables, um, it's bread, it's dairy, it's those types of items that have an expiry to them uh, that we uh, redirect. So this article is talking about the food waste in Canada and how for the longest time it was thought that the majority of food waste was coming from households. Uh, Now they're showing that a huge percentage of that wasted food comes earlier in the chain. So uh, from production and processing and manufacturing and then distribution before it gets to retail and households. Where do you fit on this chain? Where are you picking up from? So we are regulated um, by AHS, so we can only pick up by, uh, sorry, at the retail level. Um, and we certainly advocate for better, better home practices. We have picked up from some manufacturers and processors before, 
um, but certainly the easy way um, in for us to start as an organization was go straight to the grocery store, straight to the retailer, and ask if we could have their excess food that, you know, they weren't going to sell and they were going to throw into the landfill. Um, the next steps are certainly to, um, you know, look at that higher level in the chain. You know, how can we get to the manufacturers and the processors um, so that we can all collaborate to have a better system in place to reduce that waste. In your research, have you learned about whether our system is a little bit different than in the United States? I know some grocery stores in the States are taking in those, you know, quote unquote imperfect. I've seen it in some of our local grocery stores. Uh, Do you know if we have different rules about that here in Canada? So the the biggest rule that's the difference between Canada and the U.S. is that in the U.S. um, you can actually get a a donation receipt, a charitable tax receipt for donating food. And in Canada, uh, we don't have that. So you have that, you know, a little bit of an incentive there to donate your excess. Um, and that helps, you know, the, the nonprofits, it helps the corporations that are looking to, um, to help on the food waste front. Um, but at every level, at every retailer, at every processor, and then in our own homes, um, you know, food waste is sort of, uh, that's the curse of it, is that it happens at every single level. We, we cannot get away from it. Um, so we need to do better at every, letter, at every level. I think that would be a great plan to implement here in Canada to have that tax incentive as small as it might be. Yeah, that's one of the ways, certainly. I know that Second Harvest, um, the organization in Toronto that put out this report, um, we're in contact with them all the time, trying to figure out better ways to collaborate and what works best for Canada. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, has to start with that political will and it has to start with legislation. Um, companies, or pardon me, uh, countries like uh, France and uh, and Germany have instituted, you know, Grocery stores just cannot waste food. You must donate it. Um, And so I think if we start thinking there, uh, we can find solutions that are good for Canada. Well, I would think so. And also that awareness, right? I think it's only in the last few years, at least for myself, where I've even realized how much gets wasted. For sure. And I think that's that's definitely an advocacy piece that um, the Leftovers Foundation uh, works on. Um, it's, It's important that you know, everyone is guilty of food waste, which means everyone can actually do something about it. Um, and so if we just start shifting our mindset and value food um, the way it should be valued, I think we would all see that these numbers um, wouldn't increase, they would decrease. Um, I was going through the report this morning and it's something like 44 uh, or $49 billion a year in Canada is thrown away in food waste, and, and years ago, it was $31 billion. So we're not doing any better, um, mm-hmm. and we need, we, need to, we need everyone on board, basically, to solve this crisis. Well, I imagine you must go to sleep every night and feel like you've done something to make this world a little bit better. Uh, some days when I do sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that would be the other trick, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, certainly. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you so much for your time today and all your efforts. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jody. 517. As you may have heard, Betty White turned 97 years old today. Uh, I would love to welcome to the program Patty Clark. She is the National Executive Director of Active Aging Canada. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. We just want to talk about, you know, being 97, aging well and living your best life. And I really feel like here we are in 2019. And as we get older, we seem to have so many more options for living a good life. What do you think? 
Oh, I think you're right. And I think, you know, there's so much more information out there now about how to live well and live independently that we didn't know 50 years ago. Um, and I think all of that is helping us all to live a much better and healthier life than what we certainly did many years ago. Because now it seems like living to be 90, 94, 97 is wonderful, but it's not the it's not abnormal anymore. It isn't, is it? And no. Tell us a bit about your group. What do you guys do? Well, the comp- Active Aging Can is a national charity, and our whole focus is in promoting aging well, primarily through activity, because that is like the pill. If you could take a pill to stay well and, and live longer, activity certainly is it. But we also look at mental health, and we look at you know eating well. So all of the all the pieces that are combined together to live well, live independently, and have a good quality of life as we age. And I think that's the key, isn't it? You know, back in the day, mm-hmm. you'd hear about people retiring and just, you know, sitting at home and, and not mm-hmm. being a, 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 a valuable member of society all the time. And now you are seeing so many people who have a completely different mindset where they want to volunteer and they want to be active and they want to live their best life. And, you know, it's interesting, and it, we need to have that culture change, too, because when we think of people who are retiring, some people are doing as early as 55 and, you know, on up to 65, 75, but the wealth of knowledge and experience that they have is so wonderful that to lose it, to think that they can't contribute to society more, and when they can contribute to so many parts of society, whether through working part-time or volunteering, that they are a tremendous asset to society instead of being this this tsunami of, of all this, you know, that's coming out saying, well, what are we going to do with all these older people? Well, they are a tremendous asset to society as opposed to being a burden. I love some of those communities that you'll hear about in uh, certain countries where they will almost have uh, like a... a a condo that's full of retirees and working parents and uh, sometimes you'll see some of the retirees that are you know they'll take turns with everybody in the building making meals and helping with the kids Mm -hmm. and it's that you know that again it goes back to that sense of community and having that feeling of belonging yes absolutely it's very true feeling that you're making some positive contribution to society is very important for one to have have that self-worth of of what am I doing with my life and we also can't forget that, you know, everybody is going to age differently. We heard, you know, here's Betty White at 97, and I swear that woman could do a handspring if she yeah. wanted to do a back handspring. And then, you know, uh, Prince Philip got into a car accident. He was out still driving at 97, so obviously still capable of it. But, you know, if you look at the two of them, I think you would be more apt to suggest that he is his 97 years, whereas Betty White seems to have this agelessness. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's just that he's still driving mm-hmm. is phenomenal um, because that is... Probably not the norm. I would no. say I don't know what the statistics are from that perspective, but still to be able to do that and have your, you know, that, that to me is still pretty phenomenal. So, if somebody has a, a coworker or a friend or family member about to retire, what would be the number one advice you would give to the person who is around them, who is not retiring, but how could they help the the retiree or the retiree to be? I would say the best thing is to stay connected with them. You know, so whether it's a phone call or let's go out for lunch or something so that they are, they're still connected with, with people in work, assuming that they, you know, have a good relationship and want to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness you're gone. And, <laughs> and you can't assume that because some people, when they quit work, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to go back to anywhere they've had now. So assuming is obviously a good work that's environment. <laughs> oh, that's true. We're and, adding and, more stress now. <laughs> So, and you and you know sometimes when you assume that that's the wrong thing to do, but 
if, if you're leaving on good terms and you've got friends there, really from a friend perspective, to stay connected with that person um, is really critical. Um, but they, they also, you know, people who are starting to retire, they also need time to figure out what they want to do in my life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they need some time just to chill out at home and go, Oh, like I know one of the biggest things when teachers retire, that, that September 1st, when they don't go to school, it's a, oh my goodness, I haven't done this in like 50 years, right? So, Oh my gosh. So they, they do, they, you do need time to sort of, you sort of assess what you want to do and, and look at options and not feel like you have to run out and start volunteering on day two or go find a part-time job. But, you know, give them time to breathe and sort of sort things out and see what they like doing. And, but, don't, but stay connected and, and make sure. sure, you know, that they are doing that would be my, my thing, yeah. Well, and there's nothing wrong with your passion being something like gardening or something at your own house, right? Absolutely. So. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Patty. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Jody. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to rate the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.